All right, I'm going to read to you again from uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. This is the section we've been on for quite a while. Um, I'm sure it looks pretty good on the website as you list, and it just keeps saying the same verses over and over and over. And people are thinking it's a, a, a technical glitch, but it's not. Just think we're a slow group. Think we're a slow group. That's right, slow learners. For this very reason, Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you that are listening online, I, I've already given everybody a heads up. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to deal with this word godliness where we left off last time. And then we're going to jump over brotherly kindness and love and come back to them when we meet back together uh, and spend the rest of our time tonight dealing with verse eight. Um, but let's take a look at godliness. Um, we have to take some time to define godliness because for, I've been, for me as well, many people think that godliness and goodness are the same thing. Because we saw earlier that he wanted us to have goodness or virtue and then also godliness. And for years I kind of looked at them and thought they were similar. But if we really take the time to let God show us what godliness means, you'll find that there actually is a very distinct difference. And it's actually pretty powerful when we take a look at it. So virtue has to do, or goodness, goodness or virtue has to do with moral goodness. But godliness has to do with a devoted attitude toward God. I'm going to say that again. Godliness is a devoted attitude toward God. Uh, it, the Greek word is eusebia, which means to be devout. But trying to put it into English is tricky. And so I'm going to give you a couple of phrases or actually five or four phrases here uh, that will maybe help you get a better picture of what it, what it means as we break it down. Uh, some people call it perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Uh, living your life with a, with a Godward attitude, uh, the call to be like God, to, to endeavor to be like God, or a, like I just said, a Godward attitude. Godliness is a hungering for more of God. Goodness, as you know, as we looked at already, virtue had to do with your moral attitude or your moral behavior and your moral goodness. But when we talk about godliness tonight, we're talking a hungering and thirsting for more of God, wanting to be near him, wanting to hear his voice, wanting to be like him, wanting to experience the fullness of what it is we've been given in this relationship with God, where the wall of division has been removed because of Jesus Christ. We have been made one with God and he's in us and we're in him. And godliness is a hunger for more of that. As, as, as uh, David said, as the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul longs after you. That's what we're looking at tonight. So what does godliness look like? Is that what your shirt's saying right there? There you go. Uh, what does godliness look like? Well, let's go to Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 is a very familiar passage for a lot of folks, but we're going to kind of break that section down to really kind of help us see it a little bit more. It was uh, years ago when I was in Chicago that a man came up to me after church. And he said, I'm sick and tired of all these praise songs we're singing. And I said, I said, really? And he goes, yeah. He said, like that one we did today, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs after you. He said, who wrote that junk? Now, I have to be honest with you. He didn't say junk. 
<laughs> so I said, well, let me show you who wrote it. And I took him to the Psalms where David wrote it. And he was very convicted, actually repented right there and said, I was in the wrong. But that's the attitude that, that we need to be looking at tonight. So it says, blessed, in Psalm 1 verse 1, is the man, man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, God's law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In this, we see that the godly person doesn't consort or counsel with sinners. Now, again, please don't hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying we should have nothing to do with those people that don't know the Lord. No, God's put us in the world to be able to have an effect on the world. We're not saying have nothing to do with them. And there's too many Christians that try to live in their ivory tower and build their little retreat centers where they never have any effect. No, 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 no. We're to be in the world so that Jesus can live his life through us. But did you hear he's saying you don't consort or counsel with them? In other words, you don't imitate the wrong crowd. You know full well, if you hang out with a certain group of folks, after a while, you're going to what? You're going to start to act like them. I, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up the son of a preacher. And to be honest with you, cursing never was an issue for me. But in my years of being in the locker room playing sports, I was amazed at how when before a curse word would never even come across my mind when I'd bang my finger or whatever, all of a sudden it started to. Now, by God's grace, I never became a cusser. But at the same time, it shocked me that, wow, I heard it enough, hung around it enough, that all of a sudden it started to come across my mind. And so this is what the psalmist is saying is, is you don't live your life consulting with these people, hanging out with these people to the point that they have an effect on you. You see, when that happens, you become cynical of God instead of pursuing God. Does it mean we have nothing to do with the world? No. Jesus ate with sinners. Remember the Bible said that. He was accused of eating with sinners, and, and he did. But he had an effect on them. They didn't have an effect on him. The godly person also we see in this passage meditates on God's word. What? All the time. Now again, we've, we've been taught, well, you, did you have your quiet time today? Did you do your Bible reading? No, this isn't what God wants from us. He doesn't want duty. He doesn't want obligation. He doesn't want us to check off, well, I did the things God wants me to do. He loves us and he wants us to spend time with him and he wants us to meditate on his word. And we've talked about that a lot, that not just reading a verse and, or passage and saying, I've done my Bible reading. And please don't hear me wrong. I've said this before, but I'll reiterate it. I got nothing against the reading through the Bible in a year, but it can be a problem. It could actually hurt you more than help you because you're more focused on getting your reading done than meditating on the word. And if you just read it, you... Especially in some of those days, you got to cover quite a few chapters, don't you? By the time you're done, you're going, whew, I'm glad that's over, you know. But you haven't retained it. 
And God wants to speak to you. He wants, to, he wants you to have his word just become in you where you not only read it, but you focus on a passage and you stay there for a while and you think on it over and over. And you get it in your heart so while you're driving to work or going to the grocery store, you can be thinking about God's word. And uh, let me give you just a quick example of that kind of a thing. Uh, I was talking with a friend today whose wife's uh, struggling with cancer and, and God had me give him Vance Havner's book, Though I Walk Through the Valley, as he dealt with the loss of his wife and she went through this disease and we, we, we spent some time this morning looking at though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I'll fear no evil because you're with me and as you meditate on that a couple of things came out and Vance Havner brought a couple of these things out as well he says you walk through the valley the word through came out to us you don't set up tent stakes and live in the valley God says I'm gonna walk you through the valley there's a movement in the valley and then, which way do you have to be facing in order to see your shadow? Away from the sun. Your sun the sun's at your back, you'll see the shadow. But if you turn around and you face the sun, it's behind you. Do you see it? But this just came from meditating on that passage. You got thinking about shadows and we got talking about it. This is what it's talking about here. The person that is godly, the person that has a godliness, the Eusebia, the devoted one. You just, you don't read God's word because it's what you're supposed to do. You hunger to know God better. And that's how you're going to know him is through his revealed written word. You spend time there. And if that means you spend a week on one passage or a month and a half on Second Peter chapter 1, you know, that's okay if you're meditating on God's word all the time, day and night. And then he says here also, the godly person, what, produces fruit, or God produces fruit through them. God uses them and blesses them. If you're a godly person and your hunger is for God and you have a Godward attitude, you will produce fruit. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you're going to produce fruit. It's going to happen. Because he just said that we're to be, he's the vine, we're the branches. We're to be just abiding in him. And he said, I'll take it from there. All he asks of us is to daily lay our flesh aside because it's still there pulling away from you. The world's pulling you away from him. The devil's pulling you away from him. Your flesh is pulling you away from him. You daily lay yourself back on the altar renewing of your mind offer your bodies as living sacrifices and in the greek it actually says the daily renewing of your mind and all he looks for us is to have that attitude that's godward and we say i want to just spend the day with you today i want to spend the day with you today you want to be around these type of people don't you you ever you ever run into a few of those folks that had the godward attitude and they just they just spent time in god's lap you want to be around those people. You just feel good around those people. That's why people want to be around Jesus. Even the sinners, the people that didn't know God, people who were living in a way that was displeasing to God, they wanted to be around Jesus. Why? Because the love of God was just emanating from him. Oh, he still dealt with their sin. He would still correct. He would still rebuke. But he did it in a way in which they understood the person who's telling me what I'm doing is wrong loves me. And he's telling me for my best. Back when I was in seminary, um, there was a professor, and I'll be honest with you, I can't even remember his, oh, I do, just remembered it, Teeley, Dr. Teeley, T-H-I-E-L-E, Dr. Teeley, Ed Teeley was the professor, and students would fight 
to get in his eight o'clock class. Now, you have to understand, eight o'clock classes in seminary, especially for preacher boys who had been spending the weekend traveling 400 miles to go pastor some little church in Mississippi, to take an eight o'clock class was hard. But guys would, would literally get there as soon as they could, registration day, to get in Dr. Tilly's eight o'clock class. You know why? Dr. Tilly spent morning with Jesus. He had breakfast with Jesus. And you want, he would come straight from his time with the Lord into the classroom. And you just wanted to be in the room with him. Oh, by the way, he didn't clean his glasses. Never. <laughs> Literally, you wondered if he even saw where he was going. You hope he never drove a car. Because his glasses were so dirty. But you know what? Dr. Tilly knew the Lord. And I actually, of all people, got up early and got in an 8 o'clock class to be in Dr. Tilly's class. And to be honest with you, I don't remember what class it was. That wasn't the issue. The issue was, I want to be around that man. I want to be around that man. Godly people, those who have a continual Godward attitude, ask these type of questions. What's God's plan? What is God doing? What does God desire in this situation? What would be pleasing to God? That's a Godward person, a godliness person. Their attitude is, what is God doing? What does God have in mind? What would be pleasing to God? I want to be a part of what God's doing in this situation. And we're looking for God. You're looking for God all the time because you have a Godward attitude. Again, this isn't a holier than thou. This isn't a phony type of holiness. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on tonight. No, this is a sincere, I haven't heard from God. Let's, let's wait. You'll hear people talk like that. In the church today, we're so quick to run to the, let's make a decision. Let's, what's the program? Uh, what does the manual say? What are the, you know, what are the bylaws? It pulls you out of the Godward relationship. A person with a heart of godliness, the Eusebia we're looking at, says, what is God doing? I'm, I'm going to make a statement to you that I want you to write down. And I want you to really let God kind of run this one over in the washing machine of your mind, if you will. Let it, let it tumble dry. All right? Here's the phrase I want you to write down. Worse than failure, worse than failure is to succeed at something that is not of God. Worse than failure, and I mean that, worse than failure is to succeed at something that is not of God. You know what one of the problems with the flesh is? The flesh works. The flesh produces results. You can grow a church in the flesh, but God's not in it. <clears throat> Worse than failure is to succeed at something that's not of God. Well, now we have to deal with this question then. How do we become godly? I mean, the Bible says, add to your faith knowledge and goodness and self-control and godliness. How do we add to our faith godliness? Any ideas? Hang out with him. Spend time. <laughs> spend time with him. Hang out with him. You will be like, you'll become like the object of your affection. Remember how we told you, if you hung out with the wrong crowd, you're going to start acting like them? Just go spend time with them. Spend much time with them. Go with me to Matthew chapter 6.
Look at verses 19 through 21. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus is speaking. He says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want to focus on that. If you've not read Randy Alcorn's book, The Treasure Principle, get it. It's a simple little book. It's a simple little read. But he brings out a real powerful truth. He said, do you want to have a heart after God? Do you want to have a heart for God? Put your treasure in things of God. Give your money to things of God. Put your time into things of God. Now remember, not just things of God, but the things you believe God's leading you to be involved in. If you were to invest uh, tomorrow in General Motors stock, would you not all of a sudden have a heart for General Motors? Would you not all of a sudden become passionately concerned with the welfare of General Motors? Would you not possibly pray for General Motors or think about General Motors? Would you not buy a General Motors car? Would you not possibly scratch the door of someone who didn't buy a General Motors car? You see, what I'm saying is this. <laughs> I have to go back to the goodness and virtue lesson if you did the last one there. But you see what I'm saying is if you put your treasure there, your heart will follow, Jesus said. It's called The Treasure Principle by Randy Elkhorn. <laughs> but look at what he says. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, we could all devote ourselves or make a commitment, I'm going to start spending time with God. And I'm going to say to you, for most of you, good luck with that. It'll be one or two that have that kind of discipline who might be able to keep it going. Most of us would set out. I mean, we, if you think back over your life, I, I could show you the journals that I sat down and said, God, I'm going to spend so much time a day in this journal. I'm going to write to you every day. And, and I started on August 12th, 1995. And I put the date. And then August 13th, 1995, I wrote something to God. And then August 14th, 1995. And then August 17th, 19. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. And then it, I still have them. There, all of a sudden, there's a month or two missing, you know? My intentions were good. But here, look at what Jesus says. Put your treasure where God is. Your heart will follow. Put your treasure where God is, and your heart will follow. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 2. Hebrew writer says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He's just said in verse 1 that we're to, as you see here, throw off everything that hinders and the sin so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. But he didn't say, you know, set your mind to do it. 
He said, put your eyes on Jesus. Put your eyes on Jesus. And many of us have set out to make a commitment and a vow. You know the Bible says be careful about making vows. Just set your eyes on Jesus. That's why, by the way, when Jesus called his disciples, do you remember how he called them? What did he say? Come follow me. In John chapter 1, we see John the Baptist there, and Jesus walks by, and John the Baptist points to Jesus and said, There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Bible says, Upon hearing this, two of John the Baptist's disciples stopped following John, stopped being a disciple of John, and became disciples of Jesus. And they went to Jesus and they said, Rabbi, Master, Teacher, where are you staying? And all he said was, Come and see. He didn't say the class is Tuesday night at 7. He said, Come and see. Follow me. Oh, but you know what? And I'll get to that a little bit more later on tonight. I can't wait to get to this, the encouragement of verse 8 and why God wants us to jump over brotherly kindness and love. But are you going to have days where you don't follow Jesus? Yes. Yes. I'm going to encourage you. Stick with me. Don't run out of the room thinking, I'll never be godly. <laughs> the Bible says that we're to possess these qualities, what? In increasing measure. Don't beat yourself up here trying to measure against the standard. See, this is something that God's been beginning to open my eyes to is that, yeah, there are some there are some ideals here there in the, in the scriptures. There are some pictures of what God's looking for and what he's wanting to produce in and through us. But for too long, the preachers are saying, why aren't you there now? And Jesus all along has said, just follow me. Peter had some bad days, did he not? But he's going to be all right. Because he kept his eyes on Jesus. Oh, he took him off once in a while. But, well, as we saw in Hebrews, the author and the what? The finisher, the perfecter of our faith. Go to Philippians chapter 2 real quick. Look at verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Actually, I want to go to verse 1. I have to just go back to verse 1. If you have any encouragement, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy be complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Don't do, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, and your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, listen closely. We want to run too quickly to saying you should have other people's interests in mind instead of yours. You shouldn't be so selfish. And we run to teaching how you ought to live first. But how did Paul do it? He said, if, and it needs to come out of this, you have encouragement from the fact that you're united with Christ. If you have comfort from His love, if any fellowship with His Spirit. In other words, because of your relationship, focus on your relationship first. Then this other stuff will come. You can't set out to be a better Christian without letting your focus on Jesus and your Godward attitude, your godliness be what produces as God flows through you now because of the joy of your relationship, all that other stuff. We can do nothing without Christ. Exactly. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. So, don't set out to do a better job of being a better Christian. 
go spend time with Jesus and fall in love with Jesus and you just watch what happens. You just watch what happens. Now, I need to take a little detour here. It's still a part of where we're going, but I need to, I need to give you a word of caution, though. You see, pursuing God should be for knowing and pleasing God, not for what you can get out of it. And there are some benefits, as we've just touched on a little bit. And we could actually, I could do a whole study that could just show you how the Bible says that God wants to bless those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Second Corinthians, uh, sorry, Second Chronicles 16, 9 says this. It says, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God wants to bless those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And there's a whole genre of preachers out there who have just taken that aspect of who God is and they've turned into a theology of health and wealth that is not biblical. Yet there's a biblical truth there. And if you start to experience some of the blessings of being Godward, there are those who all of a sudden become Godward for what they can get out of it instead of being Godward for just getting to know him and to please him. Let me show you what I mean. Timothy, Paul had to deal with it as he wrote to Timothy. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And look at verses 3 through 11. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 11. Remember, Paul wrote this book to Timothy as he was a young man, but he was becoming an elder and a leader in the church. And uh, he was giving him caution and instruction. And he's warning them now, warning him about some people in the church that Timothy was going to have to run into and deal with. He says in uh, verse 3 of 1 Timothy 6, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Do you see it? Something's never changed. Something's never changed. Folks, it couldn't be any more clear. That those who say, if you do this, God will make you rich. The scriptures say, watch out for those people. Will God bless? Yes. Will he give more than you ever could imagine, ask, or think? Of course. But be careful of those who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Keep reading. But it says in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It didn't say money is the root of all evil. It says a love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. That's why I just probably want to take a little detour here and just give you a little heads up. As you head down this road of seeking more of God, you're going to run into those who will tell you, yes, I did that too, and God paid off my house. <laughs> Be careful. Be careful the preachers will promise if you give to their ministry, you can get a brand new car. Just watch out for those things, because there are those out there who will take a little bit of truth from this Godward attitude and they'll, they'll twist it. But I will tell you, I don't want you to miss out on the truth. 
I have learned to experience it. We've experienced it as a family. As we have sought to be faithful to what he says and to just love him and walk in obedience to what he says, we've experienced God bless us in ways I could take days to explain. It's just, it, you, you, you say, wow, really? It's like, it's almost to the point of, he read my mind. How do you know I wanted that? But you have to be careful because your flesh will say, wow, I'm thinking of something, you know, you have to be careful of that. Be careful of that. Okay. Now, the real evidence that our that our gospel message is real to us, by the way, the Bible says is godliness. There are those who preach Christ. They had wrong motives, Paul said in Philippians chapter 1. There were those who were preaching Christ for the purpose of making Paul look bad. There are those who are preaching Christ because th they would get wealthy doing it. You know, I don't know if you remember, some of you probably do. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, there used to be a lot of places that would give clergy discounts. Dentists used to do it, doctors, different things. Well, all of a sudden, everybody became a reverend. <laughs> Serious. And right now, you'd be hard-pressed to find a clergy discount anywhere. Because so many people all of a sudden saw it as a way to get, you can go online and become a reverend. Sermons.com, there. There you go. There's lots of places. But go to Jude chapter 11. I'm sorry, not chapter 11, verse 11. Yeah, Jude verse 11. Uh, and listen to verses 11 through 19. The real evidence that our gospel message is real to us, though, is godliness. Book of Jude, look at verses 11 through 19. As Jude is dealing with these false teachers, remember if you know anything about this book, he had wanted to talk about this awesome salvation and this gospel of Jesus. But he really felt he had to contend for the faith and say, watch out for these false teachers. He's in the middle of describing them and he says, woe to them, verse 11, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame and wandering stars for who the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. Watch out for anyone in Christendom that says, follow me, and then they divide you from others. Paul did say, follow me as I follow Christ. But he didn't divide. 
Watch out for those who are in the ministry to build themselves up, who are doing it for approval, attention. Watch out for the guys who like the fact that they have a personal parking space. Watch out for the guys who like their name on the side of the bus. Be careful. Because one that is godly, their focus is who? Jesus. Jesus. All right. Now, pursue God. Live your life to know him better and to please him. But this is where, as I was looking at tonight's study, go back to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is where, as I was looking at tonight's study, I just couldn't go from where we just stopped into brotherly kindness and to love. Because I really feel like God said, next time you get together, I want you to go there. There's something we have to do now. I want us to look at verse 8. Peter says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he says there. And it's no accident. Remember, every word is God-breathed. It's no accident. He says, if you possess these in increasing measure. See, Peter could have simply checked if we have them or not. He could have easily said, do you have these qualities? Do you have knowledge? Do you have goodness? Do you have perseverance? Do you have self-control? Do you have godliness? Do you have brotherly kindness? Do you have love? Uh, why would that have been a problem if he said it that way? Checking a list. Definitely checking a list. Keep going. There's Keep lots of reasons. I'm sorry? Be uh, uh, definitely there'd be a stagnancy part of it. Keep going, though. Nobody <laughs> You don't have them every day, do you? No. you? Think about this. You couldn't measure it. But you're going to find that it's actually a good thing that he says you have these in increasing measure. It'll help us in a couple of ways. The first thing is this. God doesn't expect us to have full godliness, full self-control, full knowledge, full any of that right away. God. He doesn't. And beware of any teacher that will tell you you should. He is wanting you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Moving from childhood to maturity. It's a progression. God is not going to sit down today and say, well, let's see if you have these. Right? He's looking to see if they increase. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. Here's the second reason why it's good. Here's how we can measure it. You see, if you were to examine my life and see if I have godliness on one of my bad days, and you have them too, would it look like I had godliness? No. But thank God He doesn't measure us on a day. He measures us over a period of time. And oh, and by the way, when I say a period of time, I'm not even talking a week. I'm not even talking a month. I'm not even talking a year. I'm talking over a period of years, over your life, a lifetime. a lifetime. Those of you that know anything about baseball, they, the batters have a batting average, right? Can you judge whether a player is an all-star by watching them play one day? That'd be dangerous, wouldn't it? 
because Albert Pujols is a pretty good ball player. And over his career, he's proven it pretty well, hasn't he not? Probably one of the best that'll have ever played the game. But when he moved from St. Louis to Los Angeles, he hadn't looked too good at the beginning of this year. The guy that's possibly having the chance to break the home run record one, one time down the road if he keeps playing, couldn't even hit any home runs. Thank God, God looks at us not at one time, but over a long period of time. He, he measures the average, if you will, of your life. He's looking to see growth in your relationship with him. That's all he's after. Moving on to maturity. And I'm going to give you a biblical definition of maturity. All right. Maturity is not knowing something more than somebody else. Not according to the Bible. Maturity is not being older than somebody else. Not according to the Bible. Maturity is hungering for more of God. Whatever phase of life you're in. That's the Bible definition of maturity. Remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10? I want to know Christ. He said, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. And then he made this statement. He said, if you don't agree with me, in time God will make it clear to you. But if you're mature, you'll see it this way. And what he was saying was, you will have a hunger for more of God wherever you are. If you're a babe and you're hungering for more of God, that's maturity. If you're an older person and you're hungering for more of God, that's maturity. Biblical maturity is hungering for more of God at whatever level you're at. That's a mature person. Because we would all agree you're never going to get there, right? Not in this life, right? And does God expect the same amount out of me as he does Duke? No. Remember, to one he gave five, another he gave two, another he gave one. One turned what he had been given into ten, the other one into four. And God said, well done for both of them. Wait a minute. That's not fair. Do you really want it to be fair? We have this mentality in the church that says everybody's supposed to be equal. Everybody's supposed to, it's supposed to be fair. How you handled Sue's situation is how you're supposed to handle my situation. And I say, be real careful if you want to go down that road. Because remember when Jesus meets up with Peter and he says to him, hey, um, here's how you're going to die. And of course, then Peter sees John walking behind him and he says, well, what about him? You know, how's he going to die? Remember what Jesus said? He said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You follow me. Folks, I'm going to give you a little heads up. Something that will pull you out of the Godward attitude is comparing your life to other people's around you. How come my wife and I have tried to get pregnant for all these years and that teenager in the backseat of the car got pregnant? How come I've been with the company so many years and I didn't get the promotion? How come I wasn't picked for the solo in the church choir? Folks, it'll pull you out of the Godward attitude comparing yourself to others. It puts you back on self. It puts you back on self. You follow Christ. You follow Christ. Go with me to John chapter 12. I want to have some fun tonight. And we're going to look at people's life in a microcosm. And then we're going to back up and look at their whole life. In John chapter 12, look at verses 4 through 6. 
and the time is just flying on us tonight. Let's go over. <laughs> Let's go over. John chapter 12, look at verses 4 through 6. Let's look at Judas real quick here. But one of the disciples, John chapter 12, verse 4, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, let's stop right there. Don't keep reading. If you were to be sitting there and not known who Judas is, we've got a lot of information about Judas now from hindsight. But if you were there and you didn't know Judas and you saw Judas speak up and say, look, this perfume should have been given to the poor, you'd think, wow, that's a spiritual person. But if you watch Judas over a long period of time, would you come to that same conclusion? No, keep reading. Verse uh, 6, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Actually, if we keep watching Judas, we find out that Judas actually later on says, I don't want to follow Jesus anymore. The more he keeps talking about going to the cross and dying, the more he keeps going back to talking about going back to Jerusalem and being put to death and rising from the dead three. I don't understand that. I, I signed up to be a part of the kingdom now. And he walked away and he betrayed him. Over time, we came to realize Judas was never one of them, the Bible says. But you know what? For a time, he sure looked like he was, didn't he? You ever think about the fact that when Jesus sent them out two by two and they performed miracles and did all that, somebody was paired up with Judas and we have no record of anybody coming back and saying, Jesus, can I have a word with you? Um, Judas couldn't do the miracles. Jesus even said, many will on that day say, wait a minute, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? Didn't I prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. Come on, I got some good moments in my life that should count for something, should prove something. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, as much as we could be looked at on our bad day and people think we're not a good Christian, there are those that look good for a period of time in Christendom. And that's why Jesus says, examine their fruit. By the way, if you're going to examine fruit... How can you do it? Can you do it quickly? No. no. You, it takes time for you to examine fruit. I've got an orange tree in our backyard, and I actually went out tonight and took some time to look at it. To be honest with you, I'm not too excited about this year's crop. Don't know why, but our, that tree in the backyard, years ago I bought it for Becky for Mother's Day, and it fit in the trunk of my car, and I drove it and planted it in the backyard, and it's been little by little producing lots. And last year, almost 200 oranges on one tree. I went out there today and looked at it and thought, I don't see anything. Now, I can't tell you I know we'll have not many fruit this year because there have been other times I've gone out there and looked and I didn't think they're going to have much. And whoa, a lot more than I thought. To examine fruit takes time. It may look pretty bad for a while, but who knows? You may be surprised or you might think you have a bumper crop and nothing really comes out of it. That's why the Bible says, when it comes especially to teachers of the word, watch their life. Be careful of those who look real good in the flash in the pan, spiritual. Well, someone that can sing that beautiful has to be walking with God. No. Let me just tell you, if a person has a spiritual gift and they're exercising their spiritual gift, it doesn't mean that they're walking with God. A spiritual gift is a spiritual gift. 
If someone's saved and they're exercising their spiritual gift, that doesn't mean that that person at that time is actually walking with God. Be careful of judging anybody, good or bad, in the short term. Take time. Watch them over a period of time. Because that's how God looks at us. Judas sure looked good there in that quick little microcosm. But as we watched him, he didn't look so good after a while. Let's look at the one who wrote our book that we've been looking at here for the last month or two. Peter himself. Go to John chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, and then verses 25 through 27. Let's just now, you know, be given an ability to peer in and watch Peter for a brief period of time. In John chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest, which is John. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, John, he doesn't mention himself by name when he writes his gospel. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold and the servants and the officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Jump down to verses 25 through 27. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? There's a relative of the guy that Peter had cut his ear off. Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. So if we're just now looking at Peter's life in a quick microcosm, does he look like a follower of Jesus? No, not even close. He three times said, I'm not. Oh, but if you remember, we don't judge on one moment or even a couple. We keep in mind that time will tell. That's why Peter says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, it'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. And we'll deal more with that when we get to verse 9. Peter, in time, becomes one of Jesus' greatest followers as he, in time, becomes a leader in the church and eventually is willing to die for his faith in Jesus. I want to encourage you with this, folks. Satan comes on your bad days and says... Or maybe you're not even saved. And you just tell him, God's judging me over a period of time. I've had a bad couple of games. A batting average might not look good on these few days, but you know what? As a whole, I'm still his. And then you focus your eyes back on the Lord Jesus and you watch what he does and he'll pull you through. Oh, be careful. Some of you might know how to look real good when it's Sunday. But God watches your whole life. He knows that too. You might fool us. We might have some Judases in the room. I hope not. But you know what? It's not up to us to determine whether or not you're for real or not. Remember the Bible said, Jesus taught about the weeds and the wheat. Do you want us to go separate? No, don't. You'll do damage trying to decide who's really saved and who's not. Don't, don't get caught up in that either. Let God take care of it. But for you, if someone were to examine your life over time, is there evidence that Jesus is in you and you're growing in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you growing in godliness? Are you growing in self-control? Are you growing in these areas? 
That's what he's looking at. I want to just take you real quick in the time we have left to keep watching Peter. All right. I want you to keep watching Peter. Uh, And and, uh, I just talked about it just recently, uh, just a little bit ago. But look at John 21 verses 20 to 22. Right after Jesus tells him how he's going to die and he says, you follow me. That's in verses 17 through 19. Verse 20 says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, meaning John, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. I want you to kind of look at what's going on here. Peter has denied that he even knew Jesus. He was embarrassed and ashamed and he ran off in tears. Jesus goes to the cross. Three days later, he comes out of the tomb and the Bible says he goes and finds Peter first, which is wonderful. That's so awesome. He goes, he didn't wait for Peter to come and grovel. The first person Jesus appeared to of the apostles was Peter. He went and found him first thing. That's, that's an awesome thing. And I could just preach on that for an hour. How much God pursues us and he loves us. But here, this is a third time now that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he rose from the dead. And the disciples, some of them are in a boat and Jesus makes the, the fire on the shore. And they all come to the shore when they realize it's Jesus. And Jesus asks him, do you really love me? And Peter says, I really do. He says, well, let's get going from here. Do you really love me? Yeah, I really do, Jesus. Let's get going from here. Ask him a third time. And the Bible says that Peter was hurt when Jesus asked him a third time. And Peter answers and he says, Lord, you know all, you know all things. You know that I love you. See, for years I read it that Peter was trying to convince Jesus. Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Lord, you know I love you. you know. He does know. He knows more than you ever do. Stop trying to prove to Jesus what he already knows, folks. Lord, I really do love you. And if you let me just prove it, I'll show. He already knows. He knows if you'll die for him tomorrow. He knows if, you, if you'll, you'll you know, deny it. He knows everything about you. There isn't a thing about you he doesn't already know. Stop trying to prove to Jesus what he already knows. Just love him. Just love him. And so then, I don't know if you caught it or not, but in that whole encounter, it's around a fire. When Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? It was around a fire. And I can almost picture Jesus in his fun way that guys are saying, hey, this fire reminds me of something. Peter, when's the last time I saw you around a fire? I remember a guy who said he loved me the most because earlier when he had said, I will never, I'll die for you. He had, what he said was, I love you the most. In other words, I don't know about the rest of these guys, but I love you the most. And that's what Jesus was reminding him of. I remember a guy said he loved me the most. Do you really love me more than these guys? And Peter says, like, I do. It didn't look like it. And Jesus in love says to him, let's get going from here. But don't miss this. At some point, the conversation with the buds around the fire moves to Jesus and Peter walking. Wow. Jesus and Peter walking alone by the shore. Jesus takes him alone and takes him for a walk. My kids will tell you, sometimes when I just want to love on them, I just got to get them away from everything else and take them for a walk. Take them for a walk and just pour my love into them. It, John, of course, was following. <laughs> but it's in that. <laughs> Can I come to you? Uh, But it's in that walk that Jesus does something that I don't want you to miss. Jesus says, 
Oh, remember the guy that said he loved me the most? He also said he would die for me. And he will. He will. Remember how you said you'd die for me, Peter? You will. Let me just tell you something about you. You're awesome. And you're gonna. Here's how you're gonna die. But immediately after having that awesome encounter with Jesus, he gets distracted. <laughs> you ever had one of those days? There you go. None of us are there that that's the moment where Satan wants to swoop in, beat you up, condemn you and just make you feel like dirt. You'll have some of your greatest moments with the Lord. And then within minutes, you'll look like Simon instead of Peter, won't you? Oh, but God doesn't measure that. He don't get he doesn't get upset about that because he knows the big picture. That's one of the things that's helped me in my prayer life is the fact that my father already knows how I'm going to finish. It's still up to me. I'm going to be held accountable for the choices I make. But in his all knowing, he already knows how I'm going to finish. And he's still working with me. And he had not wiped me off the face of the earth yet. So I might end up pretty good. And that encourages me to keep going. But then in Acts chapter 2. Jesus chooses Peter, of all people, to be his preacher at Pentecost. Isn't that awesome? Wow. And Peter preaches, and the Spirit of God preaches through him. And he actually speaks, and people in other languages, Gentile languages, hear him in their language. And they're going, wait a minute. These guys are Galileans. How can we hear them speaking in our languages? And if you look at the scriptures, it lists the languages. And 90% of them are Gentile languages. So here are Jews preaching. God's Spirit's preaching through these Jews. And they're being heard in Gentile languages. Yet, in Acts chapter 10, after Peter had been preaching in Gentile languages to Gentiles, the language he didn't even know, after that, in Acts chapter 10... God's going to knock him on the head to get him to go into a Gentile's house. And if you look at that story, you'll see that when he finally goes in, because God says, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. He goes into the Gentile house. And then when the Holy Spirit comes upon them as it did them, he goes, you can double check me. Peter goes, now I know that God likes them too. <laughs> He's still growing, isn't he? Oh, but if you keep reading in Galatians chapter 2, he had been eating now with Gentiles. But some people from the Jewish congregation came down and Peter pretended he didn't eat with the Gentiles. And Paul had to go and confront him to his face and say, look, this isn't good. You're actually leading other people astray by acting hypocritical here. Peter wasn't there yet, was he? Thank God we get to follow his life. But you know what? You remember how we looked at the beginning of our study of 2 Peter? Remember how he described himself in 1 Peter chapter 1? An apostle. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, a slave of Jesus Christ, also an apostle. He's getting there. And I want to look you all in the eye and say, so are you if you're a child of God through Jesus Christ. I want you to be confident of this very thing. That he who began this good work in you will finish it. But you have to make every effort to add to your faith. You've already been given salvation. Add to your faith knowledge, study, study, study. Add to your faith knowledge. Add to your knowledge goodness, 
morality, virtue. Add to your virtue self-control. Remember, that doesn't mean you're always under control, but for the most part, your life's not out of control as we looked at. And add to your self-control perseverance. And remember we looked at, that's bearing under, keeping going through the pressure, not just trying to get away from it, but through the pressure, keep going. And add to your perseverance godliness, which is a heart that says, God, I want to know you more. And don't walk out of here tonight making any vow that's going to make you feel bad because you didn't keep it three days later. <laughs> but ask him to develop this in you in increasing measure. And if you look around and you later on as we close this recording off, talk to some of the older folks in this room who've walked with the Lord for a while, they will tell you as they look back on their life, they do love him more than they did before. And honestly, it's because of him doing it, not because you did a better job. I'm only 47. I'm not old yet. Been walking with him since 1973. But I can honestly tell you, it's because of Jesus that I'm increasing in these, in these qualities. Not because of me. I'm a quitter. I'm one of the best quitters there are. If anything's hard, eh. You know my motto. If it ain't fun, don't do it. And if you got to do it, make it fun. But this walk with Jesus has been continuing mainly because of Jesus. And folks, thank you for being the encouragement to me that you are by coming on Tuesdays with your Bibles open, smiles on your faces, and a hunger to know Him more. Let's talk to Him. Father, thank you again for the fact that you love us so much. And that if we really let your word speak and let your spirit speak and we don't listen to these men who take a verse here, a verse there, and then try to beat us up with it. Father, thank you that you want to encourage us. You want to come alongside of us and put strength in us. Your strength. And all you're looking for from us is a daily attitude of saying, I want to know you more. But not just in word, but in our actions. Father, help us to break free from the mindset of guilt if we didn't read the Bible today. But Lord, put it within us a hunger, a hunger for you and to know you better through your word. Lord, teach us to meditate on your word. Teach us to just have your word roll around in our minds so that you can just speak to us as we go. Lord, teach us what it means to pray without ceasing, how to live in a continual attitude of communion with you and conversation with you. Oh, and Father, thank you for the times in which we do get alone and away in a closet or in a place that's quiet and we talk to you. But Lord, may we continually just be talking to you through the spirit that lives within us as we go throughout the day. And Lord, I know because you're doing it in my life and your word says it will happen. I know that as we look back over a long period of our life, we're going to see growth in these areas. And we thank you for it. Father. Thank you that you don't measure us in the snapshot, but over the length of our life. May we give that same kind of grace to each other. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.